You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. This message today is a little bit more meandering than my messages usually are, a bit more open-ended, and uh, I hope it stimulates thought, and I've got some stories to tell which are not often told and I think ought to be told, so a little more open-ended, and maybe that's partly the point of this message, is this is a subject, culture and faith, culture and Christianity, which is just by definition incredibly complicated. Um, And so we shouldn't be surprised if it's complicated trying to hold those two things together. And Christianity itself is so rich and diverse that you can come at just about any uh, cultural phenomenon from multiple points of view and still be within the Christian territory. So, for example, I have friends who are preachers who say that any preacher today ought to be completely across all modern cinema, they should be watching everything that's on Netflix. How can you preach today's people without having your head and heart full of the storylines and the narratives and the images that everyday people have in their heads and hearts? I, on the other hand, nearly never go to the cinema, never watch Netflix, and I think I'm a better preacher because my head and heart are not full of what seem to me to be dying stories, decaying narratives. But there's two different Christian positions on the same thing, right? (laughs) So that's complicated, isn't it? Um, If we think, what does the New Testament have to offer us? Like, is there some sort of go-to text that we could find that will just lay it out and make it clear and simple? Well, unfortunately, there isn't. What we can find in John's Gospel, for example, is... We can put together a couple of texts, we can conflate a couple of texts, and what we get is this idea of being in the world, but not of the world. In, but not of. In the world, meaning, you know, active participants in culture, not of, meaning we don't derive our life source or identity from the culture, but from somewhere else. In, but not of. Over the years I've been preaching um, that the contemporary church needs to be more in and less of. More in, less of. Milo, M-I-L-O. It's, I call it the Milo Project. More in, less of. Uh, it hasn't got anywhere. It's been a complete failure. <laughs> no traction. No interest. Why? It's too complicated. I mean, the church can get a hold of more in. We're good at that. Yeah, it's about mission. It's about connecting with culture. It's about reaching out to a lost world. That's it. we just got to get more connected, more lookalike, more sympathetic, more in tune. Look at us. We're so hip. We're so cool. We're so with it. We're just like you. The church gets that. The church gets that. What the church doesn't get is, hmm, we've got to be less about the world. Yeah, that's right. It's about holiness. It's about God. It's about being like God. It's about being different and separate and disconnected. Look at us. We're so different. We're not good at that. We're not good at that at all. And so when I say we've got to be more in and exactly the same time less of, that's just way too complicated. Way too complicated. So The subject we're talking about is complicated, and today I'm just pushing open some windows and doors just to let us breathe and 
perhaps think in a fresh way about this subject. Then our starting point is Psalm 116. So let's just have a brief skate through Psalm 116. Fantastic, beautiful psalm. Why this psalm? Well, because um, this psalm provided the text for the first sermon here in Australia, at least, uh, at least that we know of on the East Coast. Um, and it was the sermon of Reverend Richard Johnson and the second Sunday of the first settlement. He gathered... They gathered the people together, some thousand people or so, maybe more. And this was the text that he read, Psalm 116. In fact, his text was really verse 12. How could I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? This Psalm, Psalm 116, it's a psalm of personal thanksgiving. This individual writer has been through something really traumatic, very life-threatening. And in the middle of it, he cried out to the Lord and he was saved. It's such a personal psalm. It's so full of feeling. I love the Lord. Verse 1, I love the Lord. Isn't that just such a beautiful way to begin the psalm? I love the Lord for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. That's an individual just pouring out his heart before the Lord. Then he describes the trouble. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. And then I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I said, save me. Then he rehearses the character, remembers the character of God and his experience of God's protection. The Lord is gracious, full of compassion. He protects. And when I was in great need, he saved me. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. In the land of the living, that's a familiar expression, isn't it? Bible is like Shakespeare, isn't it? Full of quotes. Everywhere you go, it's full of quotes. That's a joke, folks. That's a joke. <laughs> Nobody laughs at the joke. What, what, what's, what's wrong with this picture? <laughs> in the land of the living, he's saying, I nearly died, and here I am walking in the land of the living. I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. A psalm of such beautiful thanksgiving. And that's why he asks the question in verse 12, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? Like I've experienced this amazing gift. What shall I do in return? What will I give to the Lord for his amazing goodness to me? And then he answers the question, and it's in verses 13 on, I will lift the cup of salvation, I will call on the name of the Lord, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of the people. Verse 17, I will sacrifice a thank offering, I will call on the name of the Lord, I will fulfill my vows in the presence of his people in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, Jerusalem. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to go to the temple, and I'm going to sacrifice. And I'm going to stand up and tell my story. This is the psalm of thanksgiving that he offers, I think, in the courts of Jerusalem. I'm going to declare to the Lord what a great gift he has given me in the presence of all the people. So it's a touching testimony of a person who's been through a terrible ordeal and has come through it saved but with a heart full of thanksgiving. And see how it ends, the very, very, very last line, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Now, if you've got your Bibles open, just glance forward to Psalm 117. Praise the Lord. And the end, praise the Lord. And if you go back to Psalm 115 um, at the beginning, 
At the end of it, praise the Lord. And 113 at the beginning and the end. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And 112 at the beginning and 111 at the beginning is a cluster of psalms that have a theme. And the theme is hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's what it is. Hallelujah. Everybody praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Um, So why did Richard Johnson choose this psalm to preach on that first week? At Sydney Cove, well, the simple answer is he was incredibly grateful. The fleet had finally arrived. Most of the 1,500 people had survived. He was standing on solid ground after 252 days on a boat. Those boats, you know, were you know, no bigger than a manly ferry. They were little boats with 120, 130 people in each one. And there they were in the fresh open air solid ground underneath, fresh water nearby, fresh fish in the harbor, all things, wonderful things, things to give thanks for. It was the day for a hallelujah, and Richard Johnson found it here in Psalm 116. And so, well, that suggests one way to approach our culture, one way that we as Christians can and should approach, live here in Australia, down here at the bottom of the earth. Because as Tara prayed, we have so much to be grateful for, don't we? I mean, just so much to be thankful for. Food, more than we need. Climate, mostly fantastic. And even when it's hot, we're used to it, right? But it's beautiful, amazing. Political stability, productive work for most people. Peaceful neighborhoods, little violence, outstanding health care, public infrastructure. We could go on, right? Just listing the benefits, the blessings. The good things that we have because we live in this part of the world. And maybe that's the role we Christians have in Australian culture, to see the good and give thanks for it. To see the right and the honorable and the lovely and to acknowledge those things and to give thanks for them. And we could call that approach a culture-affirming position. We are here to affirm it. It's good. God has given it. Praise Him. Hallelujah for the good that God has given, affirming all that is good in our culture. Back in the day of Old Mossman Baptist Church, we used to put on an Australia Day event. Uh, we did it three or four years down at Balmoral Beach. Uh, you know, the other churches had kind of got a hold of Christmas and Easter, so we took Australia Day. And we'd put up, a, you know, down where the rotunda is there, uh, there's lots of open land there. We'd put up a huge stage, screens on both sides. And we'd run a program for three hours from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. We'd start with some live jazz. That just brought the people in. And they came in like two, 3,000 people would come in and sit on the grass, sun going down, just some live, chilled jazz. Fantastic. Almost always, let's have that. Let's get the didge going because we'd always have a little bit of didgeridoo going. And just to be down there at Balmoral Beach and have the sound, that sound. That's such a great sound. The animal sound, just, just echoing across the waters in Belmont. It's just exquisite, extreme. It just brought the hairs up on the back of your neck. It's just so beautiful. Yeah, isn't that fantastic? And one year I commissioned, we had, a, uh, we had the bassoonist from the Sydney Symphony Orchestra here. And uh, so I got one of our musicians to write a piece for bassoon, which is, after all, the white man's didgeridoo. For the bassoon and the didge. 
Yeah, man, that was something. Two of them on the stage together, this bright, shiny bassoon and this beautiful didgeridoo and playing off each other. It was such a beautiful moment. And as the day ended and the darkness sort of began to emerge and the lights began to go on, we would do more and more visual things until at about 8.30 we would do a total audiovisual depiction of Australian history uh, celebrating much of the uniqueness of Australian culture. We, it was cheeky, it was irreverent, it was funny. We would have hills hoists and victim mowers and just every kind of symbol we could think of of Australian life, actors and dancers and loud audiovisual kind of thing going on. That's when we'd play Ganga Jang, so we'd have that ringing out. Yeah, two or 3,000 people. And after nearly three hours of that, we figured we'd won the right to speak about Jesus. And we'd send an evangelist out for five minutes, speak about Jesus. And then the fireworks, some fireworks after that. So how's that for an event? That's what we did. That's what we did. And so in a sense, what we were doing was taking our thanksgiving out into the public. So much about our culture we could have fun with and we could enjoy and we could laugh at and we could celebrate. We were taking our thanksgiving out into the public and, uh, and sharing it and not least thankful for a place like Balmoral Beach, which is like open public space. You don't have to pay to stand. You've got to pay to park, right? But you don't have to pay to walk on that land. And if you're willing to catch the bus, you don't have to pay for parking, right? But, and on that land with such a beautiful beach and anyone can enjoy it, and with the freedom to speak about Jesus in a public place. What a beautiful thing to be doing. The message about Jesus, that moment was a bit edgy, always. Just a bit jarring, sure. But, you know, Australians have a grudging respect for Jesus. And since we made it clear that this was Mosman Baptist Church all the way along, it was like, yeah, well, this is what you get. But two hours and 55 minutes of fun... And five minutes of Jesus, that was a pretty fair deal, and we did hardly got any complaints about that. And all in all, what you had there was grateful, joyful, affirming what culture is all about. And, and really that fits with the way the Australian church, by and large, has approached our culture. You know, we know Romans 13, don't we? And we know that we are taught to have respect for those in authority over us, we know that we have a duty in the land that we occupy to give honor where honor is due and to pay our taxes and to owe nobody anything except to love. And the Australian church has lived like that. We want to live quietly and peaceably amongst our fellow Australians. We pray routinely for our leaders as Tara did already. And we pray for the prosperity and the safety and the security of the nation. And since, for the most part, we Christians are middle and upper class folk, we're doing pretty well with the nation the way it is and by and large happy not to rock the boat. And if we can have our land and have our meetings and have our home groups and do our ministries, by and large, we're pretty happy with that arrangement. That's the way we have done the relationship with our culture for the most part. Now, Put it all like that, and I'm sure you begin to see some of the weaknesses in that, don't you? There's strengths there, but you can see the weaknesses, can't you? Docile, passive, church, meekly accepting the status quo. You can see the problems there, can't you? But I'll come back to that in a little while. 
What I want to do now is take you back to the arrival of the first fleet and pick up that story again. Because, you see, there's a whole heap more to that story, the story of the arrival of the first fleet, than we usually tell. And weirdly, it's not in our public consciousness, our historical consciousness of what actually happened when the first fleet arrived back then in 1788. You see, the arrival of the first fleet on the east coast of Australia was a complete fiasco. It was a debacle. It was a stuff-up. The whole thing was a stuff-up. You see, the first fleet was headed not for Sydney Harbour. It was headed for who knows where. Botany Bay. You know that song, and we're bound for Botany Bay. Botany Bay. That's where they were headed for, Botany Bay. And that's because in 1770, exactly 250 years ago this year, 1770, Captain Cook sailed up the east coast of Australia, and he went into Botany Bay, and he recorded in his journal that this would be a suitable place for a settlement. Botany Bay would be a suitable place. Uh, safe harbour, flat ground, fresh water, fertile soils, green pasture. And on the strength of that opinion, Joseph Banks was alongside drumming it up as well, but on the strength of their opinion, Cook and Banks together, 1,500 people were sent halfway around the world with no plan B. They didn't actually arrive on January 26th. They arrived about a week earlier, and they moored their vessels in Botany Bay. So they thought they'd arrive, but when they began to explore the nearby land, they found that the flat land was swamp land. The pastures were not grass, but kind of reeds. The fresh water was too small a flow to provide for so many people. The soil was not fertile. Botany Bay was completely unsuitable for a settlement of the size that they needed. And you don't have to imagine too much to think of Arthur Phillip trying to retain his composure in public and going into his quarters and going, bother, bother, bother. Or words harder than that. This is a, I've got a disaster on my hands. I've got 1,500 people. I've got nothing to do with them. And I've got no fresh water, not enough. I can't take them off the boats. And they're all desperate to get off. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And you might think, well, hey, you know, stuff-ups happen. Accidents happen. Just a bit of bad luck. These, you know, could happen to anybody. That's not what's going on here because remember, these are agents for the British government. These are the people who decided that the way to solve their law and order problem in their cities, industrialized cities back in the UK, the, the way to solve the law and order problem was to put people in jail for doing things like stealing a loaf of bread or a handkerchief. And then when the prisons were too full, Go figure, the prisons were too full. Well, you put them on boats and send them to the farthest end of the world. You send them away from their families and from everything that was familiar to them, and that was good social policy. That's the people we're talking about here. These are the people who fought a war against China to force them to import British opium, as a result of which millions of Chinese people became opium addicts. These are the people who sucked the life and wealth out of the Indian subcontinent, ruining their industries and impoverishing their people. These are the people who looted the Parthenon, taking away half the amazing marble statues. They're still in the British Museum to this day. Half are in Greece, half are in the British Museum. 
These are the people who failed to respond to the potato famine in Ireland, who continue to export, import food from Ireland while a million Irish people died of starvation. That's the cause of the troubles in Ireland. And these are the same people. These are the people who looted and then burnt to the ground the summer palace in Beijing that was built in the Middle Ages by the Manchu Empress. These are the people who came to be known as perfidious Albion. Perfidious Albion. Perfidious Albion means England. Perfidious, it means treacherous, deceitful, untrustworthy. That's the people who sent 1,500 people to Botany Bay with no plan B. And I could go on. And The debacle of Botany Bay, well, it was true to form. Those 1,500 people, their, their welfare counted for so little that they were sent to the other side of the world on the strength of one single inspection. It would be like sending people to the moon because somebody said you could breathe there. And so this story, the story of the fiasco of Botany Bay, it's a reminder that the people in authority in our world may well be wicked. And we Christians in every generation need to have that possibility firmly planted in our minds. Our conservative, thankful posture makes it difficult for us to allow that as a possibility. We know Romans 13 well, and we teach one another, submit to the civil authority of the emperor and the king. But, you know, we need to balance that with the, with the chilling story of Revelation 13. That's the story where the, the leaders, both the international and the local leaders, are called beasts. And you know what stands behind the beasts? The dragon, the evil one. Power corrupts and political leaders are capable of monstrous wickedness, even of evil. Now, with that in mind, there comes the time for the church when we need to be not culture-affirming, but culture-resistant. We have to have a capacity to resist culture as well as affirm culture. Back in the day, I used to go and visit Tony Abbott when he was the member for the House of Representatives. I did it pretty well every year. And I would go and visit some of the other um, politicians as well. And I had a little spiel that I used to trot out. And it went like this. The Bible teaches that all authority is given by God and that those who exercise it are accountable to God. And it teaches us to pray for our civic leaders. So I'm here today to tell you that while I cannot guarantee you we will vote for you, I can guarantee you that we will pray for you, and I'd like to pray for you now. He would always receive that quite happily and well. And you see, in that little spiel, I'm adopting a double approach because I'm acknowledging the God-given nature of that authority and call that then the affirming position. I'm saying, we recognize your authority is God-given, and I affirm you in that. I want to pray for you in that. But I'm also reminding that you will be accountable to God for the way you use that authority and that there are limits to the use of that authority and that you will be answerable if you exceed those limits. And that's a more challenging and subversive position, isn't it? Perhaps more resistant position. 
In the lead up to the 1998 election, the Liberals were running a campaign, drumming up anxiety about Indigenous land claims. Um, they had a map of Australia which was black and white and most of the map was in black and the sort of subtext was the whole of the nation is under threat because of Indigenous land claims. And we were, in the, we were running up to an election and uh, some, of our, some Indigenous leaders, people that I knew, began to talk about the danger of a race election in which indigenous people would be portrayed as the threat. You know how populist campaigning goes these days. You, you isolate a group and then you target them as the threat and then position yourself as the saviour and that's how the campaign works. Along with some other pastors, I went to Tony Abbott and I asked him, I appealed to him, we appealed to him, that the Liberal National Coalition not conduct a campaign like that because it would do terrible harm to race relations in the country and to the reconciliation process. And I read much later that Tony Abbott, along with another minister, did indeed go to John Howard and asked exactly that. And in the event, that was not the way that campaign went. Yeah, we're called to be both culture-affirming and culture-resistant. We're to be innocent as doves and wise as servants. Innocent? in our good-hearted respect for those in authority, but wise as serpents in our knowledge that politicians are capable of doing really foolish things and even really wicked things. And it's possible to be both, and I think on that occasion we were trying to be both affirming and resistant. Now, back to the story of the First Fleet. So we left them now moored in Botany Bay, now aware that their situation is grim Supplies are running low, passengers and crew desperate to get onto land. What do you think the chaplain of the First Fleet, Richard Johnson, was doing? What do you think? He was praying, right? He was praying. Him and his wife and any other Christians on board, that 1,500 people, Christians there praying. Um, I wonder if it was at this time that he landed in Psalm 116. I love the Lord. He heard my voice, my cry for mercy. I will call on him. The cords of death have entangled me. I'm in, overcome with trouble and sorrow. Maybe that's where he began his meditation on Psalm 116. What do you think Arthur Philip was doing? What am I going to do? 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 Well, the obvious thing to do is look for another place. Look for somewhere else. So on January the 21st, they launched some long boats, three of them, and began rowing out of Botany Bay. And they turned left and headed north up the coast, passing by, what is it, Maruba and Bronte and Bondi and the cliffs, uh, you know, at Watson's Bay and the Gap and so forth. They come to South Head. It's an unexplored bay on Captain Cook's map. It's not marked as anything more than a little inlet. They turn left. They row in through the heads. And with every oar stroke as they row in, a harbour opens to them north and south. And they take the south route and within minutes they are in the middle of this extraordinary harbour. It's deep. Deep high banks for shelter. It's enormous. 11 ships 
You could think a thousand ships in there still have plenty of room. Fresh water they find flowing down to the beach. Soil is fertile, ample flat land. It's an extraordinary place. It's the perfect place to land the first fleet. They traveled no more than 15 kilometers. It took them less than a single day to find what Arthur Phillip later called the finest harbor in the world. Hands up if you agree. Finest harbor in the world. Sorry, sorry, Brazilians here. I know Rio has a claim to being the finest harbor in the world. But honestly, is it, is it not just the most magnificent place? And you know what? They found it by accident. Or from a Christian perspective, by the most amazing grace. The most amazing grace. Well, no wonder Richard Johnson wanted to raise a hallelujah, right? No wonder he wanted to raise a hallelujah in February 1788. No wonder then he found himself reading and preaching in Psalm 116. The Lord is gracious and righteous. The Lord protects. I was in great need and you saved me. No wonder he gets to verse 12 and he's asking, how can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? What, what better day could there be to exhort the gathered people that day to praise Yahweh, the God of the Bible? It, this, this, this was not Arthur Phillips' day. This was not the day to make a speech about how Britannia rules the waves. This is not a day to make a speech about the British Empire. Not a day to make the speech about the great enlightenment project to conquer the world. This they belong to the people of faith. And I like to imagine Richard Johnson preaching in front of those hundreds of people, giving them everything he had as a preacher to draw their attention to God, to convince his hearers that what they had just experienced was the most extraordinary, gracious provision of the Lord and to win them in that moment to faith. In this gracious, compassionate God who can save both body and soul, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a wonderful story, isn't it? Why do we not tell that story? Why do we not know that story? I guess because it doesn't fit with the kind of conquer the world triumphalist story. It makes the story of the first settlement about appalling human fallibility and about astonishing grace. And it would be possible, I guess, for us Christians, knowing that story, to lay claim to it and to argue that the first fleet survived only because of God's sovereign intervention. Yeah, you could. And therefore, Australia has some kind of unique relationship with God. You could argue that. I get echoes of the American way of thinking about culture and faith. But you could argue that here in Australia and, and that is an approach that some Christians have taken. You know, asserting that Australia is in some sense a Christian country with some kind of Christian destiny. You could go down that line, I guess. But, you know, we can't tell that story, even though it's astonishing and wonderful and a story of God's grace, without telling its tragic sequel. We have to tell the tragic sequel, don't we? Because the miraculous survival of the first fleet meant the virtual destruction of the indigenous communities who lived alongside the harbour. Within two or three years, some 70% of the local people were dead. 
Smallpox, measles, influenza, syphilis. That's all it took. 70%. And the moment when Arthur Philip, you know, put up his flag and claimed the land for King George III, that was the moment when, though they did not know it, 300 indigenous clans spread across this great island were legally dispossessed of their land. And their descendants live to this day in the unjust consequence of that. What can only be called a monumental arrogance. No, it can be called what it is, a theft. And that's why for indigenous people today, many of them, it's not a day of celebration. It's a day of mourning. For many, it's not Australia Day. It's invasion day. Some more positive-spirited um, Indigenous people call it survival day, but the meaning is more or less the same. And that Indigenous perspective, it matters. It's an alternate reading of the story and of the history, but it's a true one. And so our res- recollection of the past has to include a recognition that the arrival of the First Fleet was a disaster for Indigenous people. Which story do we want to remember? Which story should we remember? As Christians, should we prioritize one over the other because there was a Christian in one and not in the other? Should we prioritize one over the other? I think we just have to hold both stories together, don't we? God's amazing provision, the first fleet must be a source of wonder and gratitude, especially for us Christians. We can see the hand of God in that extraordinary provision. And yet, the truth is that the survival of that first fleet was disastrous for Indigenous Australians and Christian compassion alone will make us sympathetic, won't it? For those who grieve the damage that was done to the original inhabitants of this land. And so once again, we find that there's no way to simplify this relationship between Australian culture and Christianity. And we come today, to a day like today, pulled in two opposite directions and both for good Christian reasons. We find ourselves celebrating and mourning, affirming and resisting in, but not of. Yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. Well, let me just finish this kind of rambling meditation by taking us into the upper room. Just to finish, on the night before Jesus was crucified, it's the room where Jesus shared the Passover meal. He's broken the bread and shared it with them. This is my body, taking the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then before they leave, they go out to go out into that dark night. You know that dark night in which Jesus was betrayed and alone, deserted, night of injustice. They do something surprising. They sing a song. They sing a hymn. What hymn do they sing? Well, we don't really know. But what we do know is that to this day, Jews at the end of the Passover meal recite Psalm 116. Passover meal commemorates the rescue of Israel from Egypt. Psalm 116, the rescue of an individual. I love the Lord for he heard my voice and he heard my cry for mercy. And on that night, night of the night before the crucifixion and on the lips of Jesus, this psalm takes on a different tone. It becomes a reminder that God can be trusted even in the darkest moments, that the Lord's people can pass through the worst experiences and come out the other side, singing of God's amazing love. It prepares us, and maybe it prepared Jesus for both the cross and the resurrection. And that's complicated too, isn't it? The cross and the resurrection. 
But then life is complicated, isn't it? Life is complex. And it's, this is true to life as we live it. So Australia Day 2020, Christianity, Australian culture. And here's my question. It's just an open-ended one. Do you think we as Christians, Australian church, are we capable of being affirming and resisting? Do you think? Are we capable of celebrating and mourning? Are we capable of living out the cross and the resurrection? Are we capable of being in the world and yet not of it? Bless you guys. Um, suitable Australia Day greetings, Aussie, 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 and all that. Bless you guys.